opinions expressed on I Care Out Loud are mine and those of my guests. They should not be considered the opinions of either Ocular Surgery News or Slack Incorporated, although you and I both know they should be. Hey, this is Dr. Daryl White, and welcome to another episode of I Care Out Loud. We're going to say out loud the stuff that you're just thinking. Let's talk again about electronic medical records. Let's talk about EMR. We'll call this After the Follies. Is there hope? Again, I really have no conflicts of interest in this gig, at least for this podcast. Nobody's paying me to talk about EMR. Nobody is consulting with me about EMR. They probably should. Uh, I certainly have a perspective that people haven't looked at, but, you know, I'm kind of like the little boy at the side of the parade telling everybody, that the emperor's naked, and, you know, emperors frown on that. They they don't like guys like me. In my last episode, I talked about our experience at SkyVision transitioning from an EMR that was based on high-speed scanning, which allowed us to double down on our efficiency-based quality approach to the patient's experience, and we changed to a more traditional EMR, which was the least bad among the options available on the market, and began our quest not to die from a million clicks. It's been a rough road. We've been at it for a year. It took us a full year to get down to 120% of the number of minutes that we used to be able to take for any particular service that we were providing. We got up to almost, oh, I don't know, 170% at one time. We were taking, oh, I don't know, 100 minutes to do what used to take us 60. And we're back down now to where it's, you know, maybe taking us 70 minutes to do what used to take us 60. So it's not horrible, but it's hard. And it cost me two to three additional full-time equivalent employees and two additional exam rooms to take care of the same number of patients and the same number of encounters. So, you know, it's been a hard road. Is there hope? Well, let's, let's look at this from a slightly more philosophical viewpoint. Here's a quote. I love this one. The essence of medicine is story, finding the right story. Healthcare, on the other hand, deconstructs stories into thousands of tiny pieces for which no one is responsible. That's from Victoria Sweet, MD. And, you know, she's nailed that, hasn't she? Medicine, what we do, healing, it's about the story. What we've been forced to do is to look at pieces, parts, and put them together in a way that we bill for them. And even more so, that we bill for them in a very specific way that's driven by people who don't understand the story, by people who haven't been in the room listening to the story, and then trying to make the story have a happy ending. That's what we do. We listen to our patients, we listen to their stories, and then we try to make that story have a happy ending. So the rest of this is all going to be about how might we be able to effect that? How might we as doctors be able to affect that? Being forced out of your comfort zone in any endeavor is always painful. In my experience, it's also conducive to learning something new. And at least in my case, it's a catalyst for creative thought. 
What have I learned from our forced march point of a bayonet transition from one EMR system to a new one? Are there lessons that, that can be learned on a broader scale beyond the walls of my tiny little practice sky vision? Uh, you know, can I take this bowl of lemons and create lemonade that can be passed around the much larger table that encompasses the broad landscape of our American medicine? I, first off, our collective experience with our transition reinforced one of my long-held contentions. You simply can't effect change in a system of any type without either being a functional unit in that system or shadowing those who work in the system you want to improve. Just think about designing the cockpit of the next generation fighter jet without ever actually flying one or sitting next to someone while they fly it. Think about doing it without even ever talking to a pilot. That's kind of like what we experienced in this latest phase of EMR. I once wrote an effort, EMR and Underpants. Our information ecosystem was designed by engineers who were far, far away from what we do with a patient. It's roughly the same, in my opinion, as giving someone the job of choosing what underpants to deliver for your daily wear without ever having seen what you look like or talked to, to you about how you wear your clothes. It's kind of like someone just decided, all right, this guy's going to wear boxer shorts with minion prints on them, and they're going to be a size 38 waist. So I'm 5'8", I'm skinny, and I'm a jock. That's just not me. And that's kind of like what happened with our EMRs. After all of our struggles, there's one huge 30,000-foot lesson that should become the foundation of the next wave of innovation in EMRs. The spoken word is the goal. Now, if you read anything outside of medicine, if you read Fast Company, if you go to TechCrunch, if you even read the, the Wall Street Journal, you hear that voice is the next frontier in all of our electronic gobbledygook. You talk to your iPhone, you talk to your Samsung, you talk to your house. You walk in the house and the, the lights come on and Alexa says, Hi, Daryl, welcome home. For the record, Alexa doesn't live in our house, but you get the idea. What made our traditional scribe process so successful in both efficiency and accuracy was the development of charting based on a spoken narrative. The doctor would dictate the exam findings. The scribe would then intuit the various diagnoses from the conversation occurring between the doctor and the patient. And while the doctor then went on to outline the plan of action, this too was transcribed into the medical record. It was a natural and familiar way for all of the players in the room to communicate. We used the soap note. The technician, the scribe, knew what was coming next. Why can't I do this with any of the EMRs that are on the market right now? Why can't I talk to my EMR and have my verbal encounter become what we would all recognize as a progress note? Heck, I'd be thrilled if there was an interim step in which all of the BS clicking we are doing to check all those boxes can turn into something that looked more like spoken English. I want something which sounds like the sentence structure that my mother and grandmother, both English teachers, demanded of us around the kitchen table when we were having dinner. How come I can't have that? With all of the hundreds of millions of dollars being raked in by EMR behemoths like Epic, you mean to tell me you can't find the resources to make this happen? 
please spare me. You see, the essence of every healthcare interaction is a spoken word. When you have to stop talking or listening, you've devalued time. Think about this from the patient's point of view. It doesn't matter whether it's a doctor or some other kind of healthcare worker in the room. Once the attention shifts from the patient to the screen, the quality of that patient's experience plummets. They're just not having the same quality experience that they should be having. They don't know whether or not they're getting the best care because they don't feel like they're having the best care. Make me a poor man's AI inf- interface that I can cue verbally to let it know what I'm doing and put it in the right box so that Uncle Sam won't dig me for being a poor data entry clerk. Because, you know, you and I both know that our job right now is to be a high-quality data entry clerk. I'd even be willing to ask my patient, Mrs. Pistolacleone, about her smoking every three months when she follows up for her severe glaucoma if I could do it without having to go and find that damn box and click it. Now, mind you, glaucoma is a disease where smoking is not really an increased risk factor. I still have to ask. That's a different problem. While I'm at it, as long as I'm talking about communicating and that we can cue Paul Newman in Cool Hand Luke, one of the best movies of all time. There's so much weight in that movie. If you haven't watched it recently, that's one to go back and watch. Can we find a way to have a real live medical record freely available on every platform? You know, how did this escape the cloistered engineers and the double-blinded underwear salespeople's attention? Your Samsung cell phone can call your buddy's iPhone and vice versa. An airman flying a MiG-22 can communicate with an inverted Tom Cruise in a 3G drive because there is a single standard for radio transmission and reception. Come on, this is basic stuff. The equivalent of declaring the, the gauge of railroad tracks time in, the, in, in the times of the expansion to the West. This isn't even tech. You're trying to tell me that the same people who think they know so much about how things have to be done that they have an opinion on operating room hats somehow miss this? I'm not kidding about that, by the way. There actually is a group of non-practicing administrators who simply declared by fiat that bouffant hats were less likely to cause infection in operating rooms than operating room caps. And they just haven't come off it, even though there have been, I don't know, three or four or five randomized clinical controlled trials that showed the contrary. Listen, if we go all the way back to Dr. Weed in the 1980s, and if we return to his beloved premises, uh, there's too much information to be contained in any one doctor's head, and we doctors can't avoid our biases and frame of reference when we make medical decisions. If we have interoperability across all platforms, we'll have free movement of information at the direction of the patient, who, after all, is the person who should be in control of this information, right? As a society, we've allowed ourselves to be captives to the trial bar's defense of the status quo when it comes to malpractice lawsuits. Now, I don't want to talk about tort reform or anything like that. That's, that's beyond the scope of this particular podcast. But this has prevented us from examining repeating errors to determine if there might be a common thread in any particular type of lawsuit and then to reduce their frequency. We don't do a root cause analysis because doing so 
means that you're admitting that something went wrong. Interoperability would allow just this sort of root cause analysis and because it could be done using anonymous information, there'd be no actionable disclosure necessary when the doctors or hospitals are involved. As a bonus, this would probably allow us to create true vetted care protocols for a majority of patients with a majority of the problems. And this evidence could then be admissible in court. All that would be necessary would be for doctors to be able to explain in their chart why they decided to deviate in any individual case, which we should be doing anyway. Bingo! A data-driven solution to the defensive medicine problem that's arguably driving up the cost of care outside of anything else. Really, all we need is a little soap to clear up our APOS problem. So that's... That's part of where we should be. The next thing we should do is we should go back and look at who owns this mess because that's going to give us a sense of how we might be able to solve this. And there can be two groups who can solve it or at least have a chance, one big and one tiny. Let's go back and do a little history again. I went to the University of Vermont. Dr. Weed was a professor of medicine there. And Dr. Weed not only developed what we would think of as the seeds of modern medical computerization, but also the problem-oriented medical record. And these two factors really drove much of medical information processing for three or four decades. The University of Vermont had a computerized system that allowed us to access all of our patients' data as early as 1980. And sister organization, the Maine Medical Center, also had computer uh, physician, computerized physician order entry, or CPOE, in 1983 or 1984. Despite all of the hoopla surrounding the Accountable Care X stick drive to digitize the medical record, the horse was actually already out of the bound and barn and slowly walking in this direction in the 1980s. So why the mess? Well, our American healthcare landscape is blessed with a number of really large prestigious organizations. They are self-professed and incessantly self-promoted as leaders in both thought and action when it comes to the advancement of medical care in all ways in the U.S. It's right there in the laps of the leaders of these famed institutions that I'm going to lay the blame for this debacle. As early as 1980 and as recently as 2008, they had an opportunity to lead our most august institutions had it right there in front of them. And when they were given the opportunity to develop a new, better type of medical record that would aid in every aspect of caring for patients, our most important medical institutions punted. When you think of the best medical care in the country, who do you think of? It's pretty easy. Um, I'm betting that you all have the same names right in front of you when you think of this, especially if you think about the broader landscape of healthcare when you include cancer treatment, cardiac treatment, uh, orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery, things of that sort. The Cleveland Clinic, the Mayo Clinic, Yale, Stanford, 
the hospitals that make up what has become Harvard Pilgrim Health, like Mass General, Brigham and Williams, Beth Israel, uh, places like Johns Hopkins, Baylor, Cedar Sinai, the Cedar Sinai, they're all household names. Every single one of these institutions seeks to portray itself as the ultimate example of excellence in medical care and that they're devoted above all else to the development and provision of care better than any and all of their competitors. Heck, all you have to do is open up your local newspaper, and they're saying that. They're essentially saying that they're better than you, unless, of course, you work for one of these institutions. They're essentially saying that they're where everybody should go for everything. Each institution wishes to project the the most pious of images, one that espouses a monk-like devotion to doing what is best for their patients before all other considerations. With a building consensus that record-keeping the old pen and papyrus way was hindering both present and future care, and indeed, you know, at least initially, the, the word was that it might be contributing to harmful care, that era was ripe for any and all of these presumably noble and altruistic nonprofit institutions to answer the call. When American healthcare was ready to look to any of these institutions to lead us into the digital information age, each and every one of them abdicated. The leaders of these and other great institutions had the chance to develop a true medical record in digital form that was first and foremost a tool to be used to improve the care that was provided in their institutions. They had the resources. Any one of them could have taken a leadership role in its development, not unlike the kinds of leadership roles that many have taken as the the first institution in on some cutting-edge medical care like organ transplantation or new generation cancer care. They had an opportunity. Instead, both early and late, the leaders of each of these major institutions chose a path with an eye not toward how EMR would engage in the care of the patient, but in how it would engage with accounts receivable. Each institution opted to prioritize the growth of revenue over improved care. They're all public institutions. All nonprofits have to publish all of their information. You can go and find this. You don't even need a Freedom of Information Act request. It's all there. Everything was about maximizing the the income of the institution while at the same time minimizing the risk associated with billing. Think about that second part for a minute. EMRs are not designed to promote the safety of an individual patient as she goes through her care experience, despite what all the marketing brochures tell you. For safety, they are designed to limit the likelihood that a payer audit will find a lack of documentation that supports the charge that was made. The bigger the company making the program, the greater is this emphasis. In the early aughts, any one of the above institutions, and Texas, and Ohio State, and Dartmouth, and blah, 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 could have launched a program that met all of the medical criteria for a good record. If they wanted to make a profit on it, they could have sold the rights to it. Why don't EMRs communicate with one another? Why wasn't Larry Weed's interoperability prediction a primary early emphasis in EMRs? Are you aware that even institutions that run software from the same vendor often don't have the ability to simply put notes from one another into a universal chart? That's crazy, isn't it? Frankly, I'm not really all that sure who's to blame for that particular bit of nonsense, but the obvious answer as to why your epic chart can't communicate with, say, NextGen 
lies in what that abdication of responsibility I spoke of implies. The institutions bought into one particular program, and it's in the best interest of the maker of that program to keep them from switching. So by not taking control of the process of EMR development at the outset, all of our major medical institutions learned that, one, they never really bought an EMR. They just rent it. And that means that, two, they no longer really own their own information. What better way to remain in control if you are Epic or whoever than to prevent the clinic from banding together with the University of Pennsylvania as a bargaining unit than to prevent them from sharing patient information on the same damn platform. Now, to their collective shame, our most prestigious medical institutions and their leaders sold their souls by prioritizing their role as commercial entities rather than leaders in medical care on behalf of patients. In this process, they've allowed themselves to be enslaved by the commercial interests that now control their medical record. Worse than that, they've created an additional barrier between a patient and his own medical record. Have you ever tried to get a copy of your medical record from one of these EMR companies? I mean, it, it, should be, it should be right there. You should be able to get it on a disk. You should be able to get it on a thumb drive. Thumb drive. They should be able to send it to you as a PDF. It doesn't happen. My medical record is no different. It's really, really, really difficult to send a copy of an EMR to a patient. We go old school. We print it out and we send it to them. Which, you know, I'm sure that having said this, we could do a better job with that. I'll bet we can make a PDF and, and email it to a patient. So in this part of the world, there's got to be a bright spot, right? Some shining beacon, some last bastion of, of uh, you know, last resort, someone who's going to stand against tout le monde and defend the honor of academia so that they don't, too, become the next rhinoceros. Uh, bonus points for people who know what play that comes from. Certainly, there's some institution that's willing to stand up and do, do the right thing by saying, screw it, we're going to make a killer EMR that does everything Larry Weed said it should do first, and then we'll figure out the billing crap later, right? Some medium-sized company, maybe. Um, I think Intermountain Health in Utah might be on the, the right track. I've, I've read their stuff. I've looked at their, uh, the stuff that they publish about their EMR and about their data management, and, and they've gone their own route. I, I think that they may, they may be on the right track. But, you know, all the really big institutions just basically turned belly up to submit to the demands of the payers, hoping for a treat and a belly rub. Now, surely... UVM, my alma mater, the home of Larry Weed, didn't cave, right? UVM must surely have been driven by its early entry into the world of digital information management and, and created their own EMR that both houses information in a clinically re relevant way as well as allowing computer-guided de computer decision-making. I mean, got to be, right? I mean, Larry Weed was there forever. Yeah, sorry. UVM runs Epic. Somewhere, somehow, some big institution has to say enough. Or some big enough institution has to say enough. Maybe it's Geisinger in Pennsylvania. Maybe it's the Ochner Clinic in Louisiana. Somebody has to step up and say no. How about the rest of us? 
How about smaller practices? I think 49% of physicians in the United States still practice in relatively small private practices. How about the rest of us? We don't have the power to make some kind of a global change. We simply don't. Part of it's the Sherman Antitrust Act. We can't band together. Um, it's against the law. And part of it's the classic, you know, trying to get doctors to do something together is roughly the equivalent of herding cats. Listen, I, I, I'm totally guilty. Uh, we all think that we're the smartest person in every room we walk into. But I do think that there's something that we can do in each of our little home practices, and there's something that we can do as we interact with the EMR companies that provide services to us. And I think it goes all the way back to that quote that I shared with you at the beginning of the podcast from Dr. Sweet. The essence of medicine is story. Finding the right story. We need to reclaim the story. Doctors need to take ownership of the story again. We have to, as best we can, as many times as we can, for as long as we have to, make the companies with whom we work give us back the story. I don't know where the S, I don't know where the subjective will end up, and it may always be at the end. It may always be a POS. It may never be soap again. But right now, that S in a POS is a lowercase s. We're doctors. For as long as we get to be doctors, I think our role here is to reclaim the story. Our role here is to bring our patient's story back to the fore. It might be as simple as having the HPI and whatever letter gets generated be in English that looks like English. Or Spanish if you're in Spain, or Portuguese if you're in Portugal, or, or you know, whatever. It may be something as simple as demanding from the companies that they give us a program where we can tell the story in a way that it sounds like the patient's talking to us. It would be great if we could actually do that out loud. It would be great if we could actually talk to the EMR if the EMR would listen to us and to our patients and to our staff members. That may be pie in the sky. But reclaiming the story, reclaiming the primacy of our patient, somewhere in that billing record that has been mislabeled the electronic medical record, is something we can do. I don't know if you can do it if you're a grunt like me, um, I don't know if you can do it if you're just a doctor practicing medicine at the Cleveland Clinic or the Mayo Clinic or at Baylor or at Sloan Kettering or Cedars-Sinai or wherever. I don't know. I'd love it if you'd try. I would be thrilled if you'd try. I'd be even more thrilled if you find me at some meeting. I'm the guy in the bow tie who looks just as old as he is. And tell me that you're doing that. But for those of us in private practice, I think we can do that. Reclaim the story. That's our goal. I'm Daryl White. 
This is I Care Out Loud. Talk to me. Enjoy chatting. We'll talk again.